Too much had happened that night. Too much had happened before that night. And so, too much climbed into bed with them, sat heavily upon them, and kept them up and thinking, even if they did not say the things they were thinking to each other. Emily M. Danforth, Plain Bad Heroines. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and today I'm joined by author Emily Danforth to talk about her latest release, Plain Bad Heroines. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So for the listeners who are unaware, can you describe the plot of Plain Bad Heroines for us? Sure. Uh, Plain Bed Heroines is uh, is sort of a meta sapphic gothic romp, um, and it uh, half of the half of the book follows a cursed boarding school in 1902 um, that seems to be um, affected by a book the students have gotten their hands on, a very real memoir. And half of the plot concerns itself with the making of a controversial queer horror film that is about that curse and set at um, that school. Yes, I loved this book i'm just gonna (laughs) come out of the gate with the fangirling oh my gosh that's so great well it feels like pressure you know then to try to like give an elevator pitch of it every time i say it i'm like that that's kind of what the book is about (laughs) so thank you i appreciate it a big surprise to me was that you said the memoir is very real mary mclean's memoir i didn't know that. I looked at the insert that came with the book and I was like, I don't know if it's going to spoil anything. So I'm going to wait until I'm done reading it (laughs) and then I'm going to read it. And it talked about this very real memoir. So when did you learn about it? And was this like the inspiration or was this just a puzzle piece that came later? It was a puzzle piece that came later. Um, I have to say, I, um, I, I don't know exactly when I learned about Mary McLean, but I can tell you like as a queer woman, I was shocked that I didn't know about her and I'm from Montana. So that was kind of my like, this is this bisexual 19 year old writer from Butte, Montana, who in 1902 writes this memoir that's so evocative and surprising and honest and becomes an overnight literary sensation. And now in 2020, she's kind of largely lost to memory. Um, And the funny thing is because the book is so meta, a lot of people are saying, I thought you made her up. I just assumed you made Mary <laughs> McLean up. And I'm like, no, Mary McLean is real. Her book is very real. You should read it. Um, it was reissued under the original title, I Await the Devil's Coming. You can find it. Um, and it's great. And and you will be surprised, I think, as I was, that that it feels very fresh. And it, and it to me, I mean, I remember reading it, you know, first, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and just thinking like, I thought these things at 19 and 22 and so did Mary McLean in 1902. And it just had that kind of um, just real honesty to it. And she's funny. So, so at some point um, when I knew I was going to be working with this boarding school set around that time period, it clicked into place to me that this, this just made sense. And it worked with all the Gothic stuff that I was doing that, that um, because she was such a sensation, there really were people obsessed with her book. And I was like, of course my students would be obsessed with this book. Who wouldn't be? So, yeah. 
<laughs> oh, that is so awesome. And yes, I Await the Devil's Coming is like the most badass title for a memoir of all time. <laughs> it's amazing. Right? And then they make her call it the story of Mary McLean. And it's like, no, she knew what she was doing. Wait, the devil's coming. Somebody told me the other day that that's how they're going to answer the phone now. And I'm like, why didn't I think of that? That's a, I mean, I don't answer the phone, but if I did answer the phone, I would answer it that way. So oh, man. so in the um, editions that are coming out, are they going to have your author's note in the front kind of talking about all this? Because it does give good background info. Not that I, no, that's not the plan. They're not going to get that little insert of info. So you're right. Like, I think it's helpful um, and because there's so much winking going on in the book, I, I just didn't expect, I guess, that 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 people would think that I made her up. But um, I think there are a number of things in the book that I actually did draw from real life that I think people maybe th- like like the black apples. That's a real variety of apple. I didn't make that up. Somebody told me they Googled that. And, and I, there's just a bunch of things. Spite Tower is an actual location in Little Compton, Rhode Island. You know, so there's, there's just a few things that I um, I didn't make up. Not as significant as Mary McLean. I just fictionalized in some way. So, yeah. Yeah. I hope people think to Google her, pull out their phone and realize that I somebody said to me the other day, like, did you you know, I was on her Wikipedia page. But then I thought, like, well, you could have made that up. And I'm like, no, this is not an elaborate marketing scheme like this. She's a real person, you know. Well, I think it's because there's all the the footnotes and some of them are footnotes about like fictional things like this very like meta universe and fictional horror movie. So I just figured like, like, this is just one of those things. (laughs) Mary McLean is rolling it over her her grave and she's like, no, (laughs) no. How dare people you. are people are going to talk about her again, so she is happy. Good, good. So, why the pivot into horror this time around? Um, I'm a lifelong fan of horror, and I think that I stupidly um, told myself that I just like didn't get to write it somehow. Like I didn't really know what the space for me was, like to be at a, as a lesbian writer. Um, who also had gone to like an MFA and a PhD. I just didn't know what that track was and had like spent a lot of time thinking about kind of this, you know, the coming of age novel and these other forms. I think that I just kind of like lost part of me that was the stuff that I initially loved as a reader. Um, And it's taken a while and kind of getting a book out and working on another book to get back to it. So um, now I I feel like it's a return to a thing that I I loved early on. And um, I, I, I hope to stay here for a while. Oh, that would be awesome. So what is your personal history with horror? Um, well, I mean, I was a teen reader of horror. I was a, I was not an Arl Steinhead, but I was a, a fan of Richie Tankersley Cusick's novels and read all of those. I don't know if you're familiar with that writer. Um, so, uh, you know, the paperback pocketbooks. She did The Lifeguard. That might be one that you know. Um, uh, Teacher's yeah. Pet, which takes place at a writing workshop, frankly, right? And I think it was like <laughs> super inspirational to me. Um, but I also just was like a, a, a big fan of slasher movies or, I mean, this is like a t- typical sort of like teenage experience, a big fan of slasher movies. Um, and then also like was, was always seeking out any queer rep that I could and was often finding these kind of obviously disparaging depictions of, of, um, of queer characters in horror, but, but like came to kind of claim them, you know, and appreciate them. So it, I, I feel like it's always kind of been there. I also was a really, really big fan of urban legends, like really, really early on. I was always wanting to like people to tell me their friend of a friend, like scariest true thing that happened to you sort of story. <laughs> and that was like a way in for me. I love like the lore piece of it. Like it was my cousin's sisters, you know, you know, it's not true. <laughs> But I love that. I love that element of like, there's no way that would happen to your cousin two towns over. But 
you got me hooked. Tell me the story, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, we just did a an episode on that. And I'm like, I fell for that every time. Like, Absolutely. the logical part of my brain is like, no. But that then... Is... I'm still checking everywhere before I that, turn off the lights. Yeah. That veneer of the truth, right? Like that slim chance that it was possible that maybe I love that. So it's so delicious to me. So like that was a way into like, I really do still have relatives like aunts and uncles that I didn't see very often that are like, remember me as the, like the annoying niece that was like, tell me again, that scary thing that happened to you once your senior year of high school, you know, cause that was, I don't know. I guess it was my bonding mechanism. <laughs> Um, I have a question from a listener and you don't have to answer it if it's too spoilery. Um, but this is from Laura who says when it comes to sapphic stories, it's often like if there is representation, it doesn't always come with a happy ending. Uh, so going into this story, was that important to you? Yeah, I mean, of course, yes. And especially when you talk about like sapphics and horror, you're inevitably right, or it's 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 going to become, you know, like who who dies and wins and, and, and characters do die obviously in this novel and some of them are queer characters but the novel is filled with queer characters i mean yeah. most of the characters in the novel are <laughs> queer right the vast majority um by intention by design and also just because that's what my life looks like those are the people i know so um some characters get a hopeful ending and and some characters get like a happy ending and and every character i think gets this was what was most important to me because i knew some like dark and like you know like the narrator is very winking about this unpleasant thing that's going to happen you everybody gets a romantic moment basically right like the main characters all get like a meet cute or a moment of romance and that was really important to me i'm like before these things happen let's like see these i mean i think what the narrator says is can we like look at them at a better time so um i don't know that that totally answers the question without giving too many spoilers away but i think there's like there's uncertainty but there's hope for many of the characters so yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. And I love the narrator. I think the narrator's my favorite character. <laughs> Do you have an idea who the narrator is? Do you have a thought about it? I'm, and I'm putting oh, I didn't even, I didn't even put a thought to this. I'm just okay. like the disembodied narrator. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. That's totally fair. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm not answering it for anybody, so that's okay. totally fair. It's not me, but yeah, I'm just, I was just curious. Okay, yeah. Good. Um, so I also... I thought there was a bit of a theme of possibly like queer erasure or like how looking back into history you often had to like infer about any like queer representation and you kind of see that in Libby's relationship because even she's like a wealthy person of privilege and she still has to live the whole like and they were roommates right <laughs> kind of life so how important was that to you in this book so important I mean I think that sort of Mary McLean is a good example of that, right? right? That like we we um we're so used to. I'm I think like queers and and queer women in particular are so used to kind of like having to like decode relationships or read between the lines or you know like like do a bunch of research to say like okay finally I've I've like gathered some proof because characters have been people's lives have been erased or subdued or their family has kind of like said like no we're going to take this information out and I and I joke sometimes but it does feel a little bit like people want there to be like a notarized statement of somebody being like, I am a, le you know, we were in a, le like these terms that they wouldn't have even used before, like, we'll accept that, like, yeah, those women were together. Like it is what it seems like it, it is, you know? And so um, it was hugely important to me to kind of write some of those characters back into history where there isn't 
um, there isn't a question for us, the reader, right? Like whatever was going on societally around them, we know what these characters' relationships look like and what they mean to each other. And obviously there's some play between how the characters are living in the past and then how they're living uh, in 2020, roughly like 15, 16, when the contemporary story takes place. So, Because Harper Harper as a character is like super out and proud and... Yeah, couldn't be more out, yeah. <laughs> She's a celesbian, so, you know. I would love to see this as a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Do you know anyone? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's been interest. We've There's been interest in it as a limited series and, um, and it was sort of taken out uh, by a showrunner and that, that didn't work, but, but like we're trying again. And I, I, I think it would be thrilling. It would be really exciting. So yeah. Do you have ideas of who you would cast? I was going to ask you. Well, I was like trying to cast like while reading it. I'm like, so should the people playing these characters be like a lesbian actress? Like I'm trying to think. I'm like, was it like uh, Kristen Stewart, Cara mm-hmm. Delevingne? She's been brought up, but yes, they've both oh, been brought man. up for Harper. Harper. Oh, because that's who I thought. That was my immediate thought. I'm like, this is like all the lip biting. I just saw Kristen Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny. Yeah, I thought more about the historic characters, and so so that's been that's been a thing that I've thought of, of too. And there is like one influencer who I'm not going to name. There is one sort of out influencer who was in my head for Harper Harper, but but the two act the two actors you've just mentioned have come up sort of like most when, pe- when other people have been casting the film in their in their heads. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, is Brookhands based on a real place at all? No, no, that is all like imagination and sort of like childhood romantic ideals of what a gilded age boarding school would look like. So yeah, that, that like some of the, the places like the coastal kind of places that is terrain in Rhode Island. Um, and there is a, there's a house um, on the water in little Compton, Rhode Island. That's kind of colloquially called the, the windmill house. And it incorporated um, the designers back in the, you know, back in the 1800s incorporated a windmill that was already standing on the property into the design of the house. And so, in, you know, obviously in, in my book, that becomes the tower that gets incorporated. So there are like, again, these pieces, but Brookhaunts itself is an invention. Nice. This is super off topic. Uh, but do you know Arden Marine? No. No. She's from Little Compton. Seriously? Uh, oh, no, I don't. A horror writer? Um, She's an actress. So she was in, like, that new movie, Satanic Panic. She was on, like, Mad TV. She was in Shameless. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Maybe I, don't, I do know who that is. I didn't know that she was from Little Compton. Okay. Yeah, she just wrote a memoir out this year, and it's called, like, Little Miss Little Compton. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Had no idea. She has a. She also has, like, a Bachelor podcast that I listen to because... Mm-hmm. And she always talks about it. So anyway, when I was reading the book and it was like Little Compton, Rhode Island, I'm like, I know where that is, kind of. <laughs> I'm familiar. Yeah, no, I've got to look that up. No, I feel like I should tell actor's name. Arden Mer- That's fantastic. So, yeah. So in the story, there's also kind of this thread about uh, books being dangerous because kind of the lore starts because Flo and Clara's bodies were found. So because the book was found next to their bodies, that's kind of where like this lore comes from, that the book itself is dangerous. And as someone who has had their previous book kind of contested and banned, how did that play into this story with the Mary McLean book? 
Yeah, well, obviously, I spent some time thinking when, when someone calls your book bad and says it should be removed, right, from influencing young people, it, it gets you thinking a bit differently about what we mean when we say bad book, right? Yeah. And we might be talking about just, like, the content of the book or the artistic quality, but I think more often it's used to talk about something that has to do with the perceived kind of morality of the book, like the lessons it's, it's instructing. That's certainly how what was wielded essentially against my book is like, this is a bad influence, a corrupting influence. But because I was playing with Gothic and a bunch of these sort of Gothic themes, of course I was going to go further, one step further to like a malevolent force being kind of um, within the book. And, and there being amongst this sort of like seemingly kind of rational population at Brookhunt some real questions about that. Like where, to the, the where does the content of the book that we find objectionable possibly link up to something um, that's doing the devil's bidding? And yeah, that was just terrain that just, it felt, it, I mean, I don't know that exact terrain felt personal, but it was, certainly it was on my my mind. I was thinking about like, what, what does it mean for somebody to say like, this book is so bad or its influence is so like potentially harmful that we have to, we have to get rid of it. We have to remove it, right? Like we shouldn't give access to it, um, especially amongst like younger readers. So it was certainly there. And it was just too, again, it was sort of like Mary McLean, like it, such a, such a kind of like ripe area of potential for Gothic. So. Oh yeah. It yeah. all like fits in. <laughs> Perfect. And uh, so throughout the book too, there's these great illustrations by uh, Sarah Lautman. So whose idea was it to include him in the story and why? Um, Sarah wrote me a, just an email, like kind of a, a, after she read my first book and, and we went back and forth for a while thinking we'd work on something smaller together, like a short story. Um, and I got real stuck with this book for a long time, um, kind of like years long time of not working on it. Uh, and then, um, it, you know, I just, we'd sort of stayed in contact and I thought, well, why doesn't Sarah illustrate this? Um, it was a much bigger project than she was initially thinking of, but it, it, um, it made total sense to me, given the era that part of the book is set, right? And this, like, the, like we don't really think of illustrated novels for adults anymore, but that certainly was once a thing. They weren't just illustrated novels for children. And then also, like, the boarding school novels were often had illustrations, and Sarah was really knowledgeable about that. And so she had a lot of ideas about style. And, yeah, once she, she got on board, it was really fun to go back and forth. We weren't sure that an editor would take the illustrations, like, when we presented the manuscript. I wasn't entirely sure, because it is still kind of... You know, graphic novels are one thing, but it's just not as common, right? Like yeah. people are a little bit like, what what are these? Um, but I think one of the themes in the book, and a very common Gothic theme, obviously, is like like people seeing things they're maybe not supposed to see or lurking, and sometimes it's really an act of voyeurism in one particular scene in the novel. And so it just again beyond them being historically appropriate, it really felt like this is one more way of seeing these characters, right? Like it's one more active looking. And um, yeah, Sarah had such smart ideas. It was really fun to work with her so early because I wasn't even finished writing the book when she was, you know, already illustrating parts of it. So yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really fun. There is like so many things being juggled in the story, like so many timelines and characters. Like what did that look like? Did you have like a whiteboard with red string? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did now that you say that. It would be like the one chance in my life to have a murder board. Yeah. I didn't have it. 
Um, no, I had a lot of notes. I have a lot of like, it's almost creepier, like sticky notes just kind of in piles. And then I get confused by my own notes. Um, and, and I'll always have an open notebook and I'll scrawl things and that'll only be good for like a few days. And then I like those notes don't even make any sense to me anymore. But honestly, what it looked like more was just taking years. It took a really long time to, to kind of, to figure out how to like write this book. And I would just spend a lot of time you know, in the contemporary or in the historic timeline. And then it was in, in the revision that I kind of figured out how to piece them together. So it's not like as I was writing, I was necessarily going back and forth and back and forth. But once I had a full draft, then I could really see like where the holes were and, and what I needed to do to try to connect the timelines. So what was your favorite part of researching for the story? Oh my God. It was so fascinating to research, um, like sort of romantic friendships, which I knew a little bit about, but just to kind of see how celebrated and sanctioned like crushes between girls off at school were, um, for a time. And, and, and obviously like, you know, we can argue about like, was there recognized like a kind of sexual component in those, but there was, you know, there were these sort of all girl dances. There were girls writing poems to each other. There's, there's a lot of material you can find kind of from like any school that was around at that time that can feel just like sort of shockingly queer, I think to like, to like 2020 eyes where you're just like, what? Like, you know, girls writing their moms and being like, I have this crush on so-and-so and and the mom writing back, oh, I had a crush like that on my, you know, 20. And it's just like, that was not my experience in 1995, (laughs) like trying to come out, you know? Um, And so, so that was like really intoxicating and fun and and sort of hard to, to let go of. Um, Yeah, I spent a lot of time just being really interested in like reading yearbooks from 1912. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. So then, yeah. So I guess, yeah, we do see that because, like, Marriott is explaining that to Harper and Audrey. And Who were like, into what? <laughs> yeah, like, and they're, like, they're having the reaction, essentially, that I was having, which is, like, could that, like, is this a thing? Was this really a thing? And, again, like, we know social mores were different, but, I mean, I didn't, um, the tech, like, like, even Alex the Flirt, that kind of nickname, it's because I read about uh, a young woman who on her campus was, whatever her name was, you know, Susan the Flirt, like that's what she was called on her campus. So, I mean, a lot of that stuff kind of came from from research and, and being just really delighted at you know, what that some of, some of those schools look like for some of those students. So, yeah. That's cool. So you looked at like yearbooks and was it like kind of relegated to those like all girl boarding school settings? It was boarding school settings in women's colleges, right? So women's colleges in, in particular kind of at that era, turn of the century era, like on up through, you know, the era of the new women, the new woman before the the kind of medicalization of queerness and the European, this gets like way into the weeds, but the European sexologists and sort of like this influence of like, this is a disorder, or this is an ailment, right? When like we, we weren't really looking at these relationships in that way. I mean, even there's a there's a book in the book. There's so many books referenced in the book, but <laughs> Side Talks for Girls was a real advice book. I didn't make that book up. And so that book is interesting because it shows you and it, it was really for like, you know, proper young wasps of the day really is who that book was for. And it has a chapter that it essentially details the dangers of having a crush on your girlfriend. And so that sort of like shows like the shift of like, oh, there's a recognition. And now we're like pointing out the problem. And now we're saying this is a problem um that happens kind of even in even in that era so yeah um I that's another book that I didn't make up that I'm assuming probably people thought that I did but it actually was a very popular (laughs) advice book at the time so was it very different doing uh an adult novel this time around because I know the miseducation of Cameron Post is a young adult novel it is um it it you know it wasn't um 
initially what happened was I, I, you know, again, I was writing the book as this, I was just going to write the contemporary story and, um, of, of the making of the movie. And that's what I thought the book was going to be. And when it was going to be that book, it was going to be a wide, the characters were going to be a bit younger and it was going to be a young adult book. Um, but I, I became so enamored essentially with all that, that research that I was doing and I couldn't figure out a way to fit it, fit it in the novel, right? Like truly. And I didn't just want it as background without giving those characters scenes. And so once I knew I was going to follow Libby and Alex and kind of like their storyline in the running of the boarding school, it, it just became really clear. Like it wasn't a YA book anymore. It couldn't be a YA book. Um, but I don't like, I don't know for me as a novelist necessarily that, it felt so much like I was writing a different kind of book, like that, you know, that I, that I had like a different kind of mindset than I was writing YA. It's just that I was writing about different characters, right. In different circumstances. Um, and I, and I guess maybe I allowed myself to take the plots in places that I wouldn't have if I was writing YA and, and you know, um, but the, the YA novel I wrote too was like, it's a first person point of view, one character's coming of age story. Right. And so that's just a, such, a, such a different approach to a book um, beyond whether it's YA or not. Like it, the whole way of writing that book just feels different to me because I was locked in one character's head, right? Like for yeah. the length of her coming of age and this is not that book. So so there's a lot of uh, Hollywood stuff and kind of snarkiness. So I just want to know if any of that was like firsthand knowledge from the adaptation process of the miseducation yeah, of Cameron Post. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, I had a really good adaptation process, which I suppose like nobody will believe now. People will be like, mm-hmm wrote a novel that says otherwise but I I really did I really loved the the women that made the campus movie and I knew them both a little bit just you know um we'd met and talked and 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 socialized a little bit before they had officially optioned and adapted the book and they were really I feel like generous with me like I got to see versions of the screenplay I went to set um and I and I love that movie. It, it the movie is really different than the book, but I but I sort of think that's like wonderful that the book is the book and the movie is the movie. And and I'm a big fan of it. It would have meant the world to me to have seen that movie at at 16 or 18, you know, and to kind of had access to it. So no, but I do like I, I mean every like so many books get get optioned now that I have friends whose books have been optioned. Um, and I think like again, there's just like plenty of open stories about Hollywood where you can find kind of like evidence of people who have not had as good of experiences right or or have been more frustrated with their experiences i mean i think like novelists love to talk about adaptations that they don't like of their books right so i feel like i'm in the rarity where i'm like i really like the movie that was made of my book but more often people are like no they got everything wrong they didn't you know like they didn't do the thing right um so yeah it was fun writing those scenes i mean i i think that what i learned most from the adaptation of my own book um was just it seems like such an obvious thing but until you've experienced it firsthand just how collaborative the process is and how many people are like exerting their influence on this thing that's getting made and how many people have to come together to ever get a thing made you know especially like in that case it was an indie film it you can think you know that and you're like yes that's have a lot of people but it just like it's an enormous apparatus to make one piece of art and I'm really aware of that because I'm a novelist and it's usually just me and my mm-hmm. computer making a thing, right? And then at some point an editor gets involved, but a movie, it's it's all these people to get the thing to your screen. And that was really interesting to me, like being on set and even before that, just kind of watching how that all fits together. So. 
That's cool. I mean, it sounds like you were flexible with changes that they made. I was. Like, I really was. I think, like, they told me, uh, the, the filmmaker Desiree Akban and, and her screenwriter and co-producer Cecilia Frigioli, they knew really early on that, like, Camp Host is also a pretty big book and that they were going to, it was really going to be about the final, like, third of the novel was what they were going to focus on. So I had a long period of adjustment for that because that was a thing they told me like when they optioned the book and then it took another couple years for the book to, you know, the movie to get made. So I was really aware of like, this is their vision for the thing. Whereas I think like some readers obviously didn't know that. And they're just kind of like coming to it going like, where's the rest of the book? Right. Like, you know, it's missing. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. Yeah. So I, it, I, it was, it was great. I had a great experience. I did not have a snarky, like, you know, <laughs> nobody was inviting me to dinner and I wasn't thinking snarky things about them during it. So <laughs> Yeah, I will say, honestly, Merit took a while to grow on me. Oh, like, I fair think enough. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. I'm not I'm not sure she has grown on everyone, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's self-aware. She, like, describes herself as prickly. And I'm like, yeah, I see that. I for sure see <laughs> that. You were the second person I've done an interview with who, was, who told me. I was doing, the, like, the most charming interview with, like, a, with an, a, a journalist yesterday. And she was like, I like that Merit called herself prickly because... I too, on occasion, have referred to myself as prickly, and I was like, "Oh, you, you know, you don't see prickly to me at all." And she was like, "That's because I'm on my best behavior right now." And I was like, "Oh my god, what am I not getting? Like, what could you be doing?" To- yeah. So I'm glad she grew on you. Yeah, she's um, she she's a little abrasive to start. <laughs> a really fun part of it was the like when they're in the modern timeline, like filming the horror movie. Was there like? maybe real life like horror movie inspiration for that adaptation like every every, i mean i really i I think people think i know more about found footage than i do i love found footage and obviously like i I think blair witch deserves its place like in sort of the canon of found footage i do but i have to say like the thing that i really love is the thing that that bo the director really loves which is is the kind of even what's the thing we were talking about a little bit earlier even when I know that the rumors that leak from set about like a haunted set are fake, it still Mm -hmm. really will kind of inspire me to go watch a movie that I probably wouldn't otherwise. Like, I love that. I love that. Even if I feel like I'm being marketed to, I want (laughs) to believe that like the story is so powerful that in fact, right. Things were like catching on fire on set. Like I am right there (laughs) for that. So, um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, obviously, like, Poltergeist is a great one for that. Yeah. Like, like, clearly, The Omen is one of the best, the best kind of, like, the, of lore stories. Um, you know, like, Rosemary's Baby. I mean, all, like, all of those kind of, like, um, uh, uh, cultish kind of horror films. But, yeah, I, I really do love that. And and it seems like we get one every few years where, like, the, something will leak from set and people will be like, I don't know, but we had some sketchy filming days, you know, so. <laughs> uh, so what was the horror movie equivalent to the kind of like cult classic movie Audrey's mom was in oh god what oh is there one like I mean (laughs) I mean there's a ton I feel like right but I don't know that there is like a house mother I mean I love (laughs) I love I love any slasher flick that knows okay 
that knows it's a slasher flick, right? But that also we can now appreciate in a way that we wouldn't have if we were watching it, obviously, when it came out in the 80s or, you know, watching it in the 90s and and it was in the 80s. That feels like an 80s movie and a slasher flick. Am I, am I like, expressing myself well? Like, it's the perfect kind of blend of, like, 80s fashion and 80s sensibility, but also is a slasher flick. Like, that's kind of my wheelhouse. Um, so that's sort of how I see the House Mother movie. I mean, it could be, like, it could be, like, a, a, a sort of, like, a famous um um movie that you would know something kind of like more obscure i guess like that that like really true fans would have to know i mean my favorite slasher flick is april fool's day but i know a lot of like i was hate <laughs> april fool oh do you like it see i love april fool's day so much i was gonna say that i'm like like april fool's day a lot of good yes yes and it's like also got that winking at the camera yeah. right it's got a real self-awareness he's even filming right like at the and so but i know like a lot of diehard fans call it like i think it's been referred to as the movie that killed the slasher genre and and people hate the ending and Sort of all the stuff I love about it is is constantly sort of derided. But I just watched it recently. My wife does not like horror. And I was like, please watch this with me. It's really fun. You're going to like this one. And she was like, okay, that was okay. Like, that was okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Great. I'm glad. I, I, like, hesitate to say it around, like, real horror fans. Because, I like, people have strong feelings about April Fool's Day. So, yeah. yeah. I stumbled upon it i watched like one of those vh1 specials that was like 100 horror movies like you've never seen and so they talked about that one and then i watched it on prime and i'm like that was a delight it's a delight it's a delight yeah i think like because of the ending which i feel like how am i ruining it this movie is 30 years old but i won't say it because of the ending i think like that just for people it's like i've heard it like described as like what's well, the equivalent of like waking up from a dream ending or whatever and i'm like it's really not i feel like it's smarter than that but mm-hmm. um yeah, whatever you know i love it and, and it doesn't <laughs> surprise me at all that you picked up because like like a lot of the things that i love about it like show up in this book too like the, the, the winking and the meta and that like all of that is there so yeah as a reader, well, on this podcast, Books in the Freezer, we use kind of the Joey Tribbiani scariness scale. So what is a... a freezer, yeah. Yeah. What's a freezer book for you? Like a recent one? I know you all are, fall- are fans of Paul Tremblay, and I am too. So like uh, I put um, Head Full of Ghosts. Like that would be a... I didn't literally, but that was a book <laughs> I had to stop. I had to stop reading and then like had to go back. Um, because I wanted to know what happened but I think like a more more recently um, I've been and everybody else already is but I've been getting into Grady Hendrix and so I'm (laughs) um, I read my best friend's exorcism and that would probably have some it had some freezer moments so yeah so I am I'm definitely like because and I'm now so I read that recently and I'm now reading his most recent the Southern Book Club's Guide to Fighting am I getting the title right I'm like six chapters in Yes, and I'm so I've just I'm not ruining anything, but I've just had this scene with the neighbor outside by the trash cans, like that scene. I've just had that scene, which was a which was a creepy scene. So I guess I don't know yet know that this is going to have some freezer moments, but I'm guessing it will. I'm guessing it will. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And they're like in the same universe, like they take place in the same suburb. Yeah, which is actually how I like because I'd already read my best friend's exorcism, and then it's like, oh, kind of the adults, right? Like the the moms that didn't get the the page time. So yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Oh, I meant to ask you earlier when you said you were a big horror fan and you clung on to like certain queer characters, like which ones? Oh my God. Well, so I've queered all the final girls, even if they're not canonically queer, but like for me, they are. And so, and I'm not going to argue with anything, anybody about this, but like, you know, like I, like (laughs) Sydney Strode is a queer character for me. 
um and will always be a queer character for me and again I'm not gonna I'm not like I'm not willing to argue she just like I like I got to do that queering as like a teenager sort of like watching her be a final girl again and again um so yeah so she would be one but like in terms of like actually canonically queer I mean it's hard not to like even if I have some issues with the movie like be a fan of the hunger right like and kind of like her um uh, queer sexiness and like that was a really formative in fact that was such a formative book for me that like Cam Post is not at all a horror book but like the hunger shows up <laughs> in a scene in the miseducation of Cameron Post because that was a really formative um, horror movie for me um, god who else like who else is canonically canonically my fave Th- those would be a couple so yeah I'm trying to I know we did a queer horror episode like the first year that we did the podcast and I think one of ours was like Lestat in the Anne Rice books is gay yeah yes canonically canonically yeah yeah and yeah yeah it gets so tricky because like it's you know like I like I'm happy to do that that work but like so many of the depictions were like pretty monstrous or disparaging depictions so like I love like uh, Mrs. Danvers as Ice Queen in Rebecca but like I like I think a lot like not all queer women want to claim her right like that's like not necessarily the somebody something that everybody else is up for but I'm like no no she's like I'm happy to like yes she's our Ice Queen you know which was funny because I just uh, recorded an episode about Rebecca and yeah, so I was doing like research about how we were talking earlier about how people want these like notarized statements and like letters released of like Daphne du Maurier and like her children have come out and said like, no, it's not true. But they're like a lot of letters to other women and a lot of speculations about her having relationships with women and I think a bit of that does come, come out in Rebecca. Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard like more recently a couple of like queer um, um, critics and film critics like talk more about like, well, we always talk about Mrs. Danvers obsession with Rebecca, but like, like the untold story is Rebecca like having, you know, like, like, like eyes for Mrs. Danvers. And I and I hadn't like kind of like repositioned it that way and thought about it that way. But I but there are like some critics that are which is interesting to me, too. Yeah, yeah. So Mrs. Danvers, like, I'm going to claim her. She's definitely, she's definitely one of them. I'm excited to see the movie. Let's see how. I am too. Yeah, I haven't heard a lot about it, but I'm also doing that thing where I'm not seeking out a lot about it. So um, I saw, like, one article, and, and they had some thoughts, and I'm like, I'm not reading any more articles. So, yeah. Wait, is it, it's out soon, isn't it? Am I? I maybe tomorrow. I want to okay. say through the 8th oh, or God, the even sooner than I thought. Okay, 8th yeah. or the 10th, I want to so say. I'm not. coming out, yeah. Because well, Bly House is coming out on the 9th, and I have like a little list of like, well, there's no time to watch all of these things, but I know there's, there's <laughs> November not. does exist, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, The Haunting of Hill House was another one on our queer horror episode, like Eleanor and Theo, yeah, yeah, and I mean, and we're talking 63, we're not talking 99, but yes, <laughs> absolutely, we're not, nobody's mentioning that one. Which apparently was supposed to be quite queer, I heard. Like, it's yet one of those, you know, movies that was supposed to, like, it had kind of its queerness subdued, I guess, by execs or something. But, um, yeah, there's some wonderful moments in... I just rewatched the 63 version, like, a couple... Maybe, like, a month ago. And it, it really holds up for, like, some... That's... A, uh, Theo is amazing in that. Like, yeah. just unbelievable. Yeah. So... I love her in the new series too. Yes, 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 and even even more sapphic. Yeah, <laughs> more explicitly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm so excited for Bly Manor. Me too. Me too. Really, and that's that's this week. That's this weekend. It doesn't. You do not like my personal schedule, but it's coming need, up. <laughs> yeah, I need to have just like a calendar of like <laughs> when everything is coming Me too. up. Me too. I used to set alerts, but then they were going off all the time, and I'm like, I'd stop putting alerts in your phone about things because you just dismiss them, and it doesn't matter. So. I do that all the time. That's why I don't respond to like half my emails because I'm like, I'll remember. I just need to get this notification off my phone. I don't remember. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad we share this. (laughs) So as is Books in the Freezer tradition, we always ask for a chilling obsession. So that is something in horror that you are enjoying right now. Yes. So I have been super into and I and we can argue about terms because it sometimes falls under the folk horror umbrella. But I've been really into towns with a secret like recently I'm kind of working on a thing so it's not always right like a lot of folk horror is towns with this or towns with the secret are folk horror like like mm-hmm. obviously wicker man but um the lottery I think is a great town with a secret oh, yeah yeah um which there hasn't been a great like there is a like a made for tv movie you can find that I think I saw like maybe in seventh grade but there hasn't been a great just like strict lottery um like film which i think yeah. is sort of surprising or short film even um anyway so i've been really into into towns with the secret and like have been revisiting um that terrain and like rewatching things like the fog and like i said sort of taking it beyond just like folk horror um i'm gonna reread salem's lot which i haven't read for a while but like is one of my favorite uh, king king books so um yeah towns with a secret with a dark secret has mm-hmm. been my obsession <laughs> And we have a new Books in the Freezer tradition, which is a final girl song. So we have like a Spotify playlist where we add everyone's answer to a final girl playlist. So what is your final girl song? All right. I want you to know that I've really been thinking about this <laughs> and um, taking it super seriously, too seriously, possibly. But I'm I like. Because there's so many ways you can go with this. As you know, you're the person asking the question. And I'm like, do I want something raucous and, like, powerful, right? Like, so for a while it was going to be, like, Salvation, the Cranberries. That is not my final final answer, but that's what I was thinking about. Or I'm like, do I want something creepy, right, that, like, I'm, I'm standing kind of covered in blood. And then, like, Karen Carpenter starts singing Superstar, which would be – but that's not my answer either. It's going to be – it's going to be Warrior, from 1982, 1984 by Scandal, the band Scandal, which is super pop rocky. Um, you, you probably know it, right? Like shooting down the walls of heartache, bang, bang, I am the warrior is are some of the lyrics. So it just feels like that thing we were just talking about, like just 80s pop rocky, little bit badass. So nice. And so this is like a fighting back moment. Yeah, yeah. Like I think it's kind of like regrouping, taking a moment, right? Like, like you know, I'm processing like the movie isn't over yet, but but like now I'm ready to go. Right. Maybe it proceeds like a montage possibly. So, or it can be layered over one. So yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of songs called warrior. So I want to be really clear. It's scandal 1984 kind of like leaned into that, that, that vibe. All right. I will add it to the playlist. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I'm getting this playlist and I'm going to try to see what it's like to work out to it. We're going to find out. (laughs) There's a a whole range of moods. (laughs) Nice, nice. We'll see how that goes. Like, now I'll do some yoga. No, okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. Um, Yeah, where can people find you online? Pretty much only on Instagram. And it's uh, M-E-M Danforth. 
my just em and then my last name and then my website which is emilymdanforth.com yeah well thank you so much for coming on (laughs) thank you thanks for having me Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Books in the Freezer. There's also a Facebook group if you would like to join that. And if you have a few dollars to spare, we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash books in the freezer. We have a one, three, and a five dollar level. At the one dollar level, you get episodes two days in advance. So on Sundays instead of Tuesdays, and you get to know the episode topic one week in advance. At the three dollar level, you can join the Patreon Boxer group, you can vote on Patreon movie nights and of course, you know, do the movie night. So those are pretty fun. We use the teleparty app extension that you use through Google Chrome and it's kind of just a chat room that's on the side while we all watch something together. I think the last thing we watched was the first few episodes of The Haunting of Bly Manor. So that is at the $3 level. And at the $5 level, you get everything that I just described, plus any bonus episodes. Right now, my husband and I are doing a bonus series called The End of the World as We Know It, where we are making our way through Stephen King's The Stand, and new episodes of that drop at the first of the month. I also let you know what the episode topics are going to be before recording, so if you had any feedback or any books you wanted to include, you can do that at the $5 level. Uh, Something I'm going to be adding in 2020 is I do want to do some episode revisits, so um, do topics that I have already covered with new recommendations, because I feel like there's always more recommendations you can do. So I'm going to start doing a poll at the $5 level for what topics I should revisit So that is Patreon. Another fun way to support the show is to use the Amazon link, which will be in the show notes. And you just use that like a normal Amazon link. You click the link and then do your normal shopping that you would normally do. A fun thing bought using the link this week is, let's see, this is a hot one, luminous geometric purse and handbag holographic purse reflective purse fashion backpack. And it is a very bright holographic purse and someone wanted to know is it useful for school to which user sue answered depends on what you need for school mine holds a tablet but not the laptop so it's more of a makeup bag for me well i hope that answered that person's question and it does look like a fun purse so you can go make some fun purchases using that link on the show notes of this episode But of course, you don't have to spend any money to show your support for Books in the Freezer. Word of mouth is huge. Sharing on your Insta stories or on Twitter about the podcast is very big for small indie podcasts like this. And of course, the holy grail, which is leaving a review on a site like Apple Podcasts. It helps with visibility and getting more eyes on us. So thank you so much to all of you who have already done that. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. And on Instagram at That's What She Read. And that's That's with two A's. You can find me other places. I'm on Goodreads and Letterboxd. 
I might leave those links up in the show notes if you guys want to follow me there. But thank you so much for listening and see you next time on Books in the Freezer. Thank you.